This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots and Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Heal. Well, the Privileges Committee's report into Boris Johnson is finally in. And Isabel, it's fair to say that it doesn't make for comfortable reading for the Prime Minister. No, it doesn't. And it's not just damning about the initial reason for the investigation into Boris Johnson uh, over misleading the House of Commons over Partygate. It's also damning about his behaviour during the inquiries, uh, during the committee's investigations and also in the aftermath, so in the past week in particular. Uh, And it makes very clear that the level of sanctions and criticism have significantly increased in the past few days as a result of what the committee sees as being multiple further instances of contempt uh, in terms of impugning the integrity of the inquiry and so on. So it had initially, before he had decided to quit as an MP, considered suspending him as an MP for 90 days, but put that in the report just to say, well, we would have done this. But instead, they are now saying that he uh, should not be allowed to have a former member's pass. And of course, that is a recommendation that we voted for on Monday when this was all be debated. Now, James, before we get to the reaction so far, you've been combing through the report. Ultimately, how have they come to this decision? They're saying that they don't buy the evidence Johnson gave them. They listen to others more. Uh, what's the process? I mean, what's really interesting is, and Boris Johnson now released a sort of 1600 word response in coming out in response to this uh, 100 page report today, is really how much they sort of fundamentally differ, sort of night and day comparing the two. They just simply cannot agree on whether Johnson knew or not. And of course, you know, there's to the extent of what did Johnson know when. But fundamentally, for instance, I think that you look at his his defence in the evidence he gave, which was about these um, work gatherings and that whether they were his involvement in that was essential, having leaving drinks or not. That is a fundamental difference of opinion. But the committee will look at the law at the time, the guidance at the time. They said, well, work gatherings were not allowed anywhere in the country. So I think it's kind of, it's a fundamental difference in her perception of how the rules were at the time. I think more broadly as well, there's a kind of, the Johnson allies have really struggled in terms of this inquiry and also previous ones like the Sue Gray report was, do they take it seriously or do they kind of dismiss it as a witch hunt? And I think what Isabel was saying was interesting was there was a letter which um, Boris Johnson privately wrote to Charles Walker at the end of March saying that, you know, he respected the integrity of the MPs involved with it and said he wanted to go further than what he said in that evidence at the end of March in that, that session and say that uh, he he fully supported the uh, inqu- the inquiry's independence. While obviously on the day that the report came out, he then described it as a kangaroo court. So I think it's really this, the difference here is that as well as a misunderstanding of kind of how the rules should be interpreted. There's also a different appreciation of what the inquiry's role on this. I think the MPs themselves on it obviously took it very seriously. But I think Boris Johnson and the kind of supporters have been keen to dismiss it at points while also going along with it. And now I think they've been kind of caught up in the remorseless logic and endpoint of the committee's inquiry's findings. Isabel, do you think Boris Johnson ever stood a chance when it came to the inquiry? In, in terms of it being rigged against him, I, I personally think that if you're going to have that debate, you have to have an enormous debate about whether 
the House of Commons should be self-governing in the way that it is. So, you know, should there be an MP who is Speaker? Should there be committees of MPs who are set up to investigate one another? We obviously have lay figures, as as it were, um, involved in standards inquiries. The Standards Commissioner is not an MP. But by and large, the way the House is is organised is so that members police one another. And actually, in, in other instances, findings have been dismissed as being, you know, marking their own homework and a whitewash because they look after their own and so on. So, you know, maybe there is space for a big debate about uh, whether MPs should be holding these inquiries or not. But I suspect also that there would be a number of significant downsides to changing that. Either way, now's not the time to be having it. I mean, questioning the refereeing system or the umpiring system in in a sports fixture when the decision has just gone against you does not make the case for reform of that more widely. And this is the 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 problem that Boris Johnson has in terms of the, you know, the sort of wider credibility, but it's also it is still a problem for you know, I don't want to sound pompous, but I'm going to sound pompous anyway. It's a, it, it is a problem for parliamentary democracy, because once this cyclone of the two sides, you know, Johnson accusing the committee of uh, being deranged and uh, perpetrating a lie, as he has this morning, and then the committee hitting back and accusing him of further contempt, and there's potential for for other people like Jacob Rees-Mogg to be investigated for contempt of the commons because of the way they've impugned the integrity of the committee you have this sort of cyclone where it just builds up and builds up and builds up it damages so many other things in its wake including trust in the way in which politicians conduct their business and trust is not particularly high anyway but it's a fragile thing and this means that once or if ever we stop talking about Boris Johnson and Partygate, there is still significant damage to the way in which the system works more widely, which is is troubling. Yeah, and I'd just say that I think that it's about the good faith in which you approach this argument and whether or not, you know, Boris Johnson's never been a particularly great House of Commons man. I think it's fair to say parliamentary procedure bores him a fair amount. Um, and I think it depends how you're approaching this and looking at this. And some people today are now coming out and saying, oh, the 90-day suspension is very high. It's way too high. Well, you can understand that. But equally, this is a parliamentary committee looking through the prism of parliament. And clearly, they feel as though they've been treated with contempt throughout this whole process. But as you say, James, I mean, I've had messages from some MPs who I would not say are core Johnson. And they are saying 90 days seems pretty steep. If you think to Keith Vaz, who got six months suspension, Mm. that was for uh, video footage in which he offered to procure drugs for sex workers. And I think you are having some of those comparisons, which is... The political argument you're hearing from some is ultimately Boris Johnson and his supporters have been antagonising the committee. That's pretty clear. With all these, you know, goading, kangaroo court, how he behaved on Friday before he quit. Mm -hmm. That was another blow. And that's when obviously the punishment went up even higher. But the question is, have they, by being so heavy handed, in a way given Boris Johnson more to work with, in the betrayal narrative, he and his supporters clearly want to push. Yeah, I think de- there's definitely a case about that. And I think that we can all talk about parliamentary procedure, etc., and the rights and wrongs of it. But equally, of course, we are talking about politicians here when they have you know, interests as well. And I think that's a completely fair point. And I, that has always been the danger with this committee. It was a danger of overkill. So, you know, you think 
depends on how you approach this argument. Is it from the kind of looking at the political angle or is it looking from the parliamentary procedure angle? And I think the reaction we've seen so far from Conservative MPs certainly suggests that maybe there's kind of a bit betrayal vindictive narrative here, which is going to be pressed by the MPs in the going the future. Isabel, do you think anyone's mind will be changed by the report? Obviously, some will still be getting through the 100 pages, but the initial reaction so far doesn't feel particularly surprising. I don't think it is going to change anyone's opinion. And that's because most people have had plenty of time to form an opinion about Boris Johnson. And they've had plenty of time to form an opinion about the Privileges Committee. What... I think, and as you say, you know, the report is 30,000 words and no one could possibly have read it in its entirety as we record this podcast. But there are things that stand out to me that really make it very difficult for Boris Johnson to say that the committee had made up its mind prior to hearing evidence because the evidence, particularly, I think, from Jack Doyle and Martin Reynolds about the scope of the assurances uh, that Boris Johnson was given that enabled him to say to MPs that the guidance and rules were followed at all times. That evidence shows that behind the scenes officials, including Doyle and Reynolds, were warning him not to make that claim in the House of Commons, but that he went on to do so, I think it was three further times. Um, And so if you do, you know, if you step away from the does Harriet Harman dislike Boris Johnson and are these Tory MPs who form a majority on the committee actually, you know, so anti-Boris Johnson that it's impossible for them to have reached a conclusion? I think if you read the evidence itself, it does seem quite clear cut. And James, what are MPs saying so far? We've had talk of rotten fruit. Yes, I mean, they said that the next Tory manifesto wouldn't have any bold and original ideas. Uh, but James Dudridge has now come out this morning and suggested that Boris Johnson uh, be taken around the marginal constituencies and stocks and have uh, people throw rotten fruit at him. James Dudridge, of course, is a staunch Boris Johnson ally and he's, uh, you know, exaggerating for comic effect. But uh, I think it does show, you know, so far we've seen a lot of MPs come out, uh, people like Simon Clark, uh, criticising publicly uh, the extent of the sentence as well. So I think that's going to be really interesting when the free vote comes next Monday on Boris Johnson's birthday, ironically. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening.